You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Because life is so busy, I subscribe to this magazine called The Week to get most of my news. Maybe you've seen this before. It's great. I've been subscribing to it for years. It's a, an aggregate magazine that just draws from all the variety of news sources out there and sort of gives you a, a debriefing, as it were, of uh, the week's worth of news. Uh, and I love it because it's sort of, uh, it gives you a, a cross-spectrum of the ideological spectrum when it comes to editorials and things like that and its sources. And it has some uh, features each week that, you know, uh, are like little uh, essays that are interesting. And one each week is called The Briefing, uh, which they've drawn from some other news source, a page worth, and give you the sort of uh, Reader's Digest version. Last week, there was one called Sex, Drugs, and the Summer of Love. Uh, and the briefing, they organize like a Q&A. And so let me just read the end of it for you. So you see here there are three questions and a brief answer to each. Uh, and so this is about the summer of love, 1967, with all the hippies in San Francisco, my hometown. Uh, were the hippies political, the question asks. In July 1967, Time magazine attempted to describe the hippie philosophy. Do your own thing, wherever you have to do it and whenever you want, drop out. Blow the mind in every straight person you can reach. Turn them on, if not to drugs, then to beauty, love, honesty, fun. How did the summer end? By the time the summer influx was in full swing, the city services were struggling to cope, and the streets were full of teenagers with no money, no food, and no plans. By July, crime and violence were soaring, and there were frequent clashes between the hippies and the police. In the fall, most of the young people went back to college or returned home. The summer of love, said Joel Selvin, a San Francisco Chronicle columnist, was a utopian movement, and that, that this was funny, was undermined by the reality of the human species. Um, <laughs> and, but here's the kicker, is the final question, really, which I want to sort of uh, highlight here. Did the hippies change the world? In the short term, no. But there's no denying the transformative effect of the summer of love on mainstream society. It left an indelible imprint on popular music, how people dressed and wore their hair, and more generally, people's perspectives. Hippie enthusiasms have spread out across the Western world, including drug use, sexual openness, blue jeans, which I love, uh, <clears throat> environmentalism, yoga, and meditation, organic food, and vegetarian diets. What was once the counterculture is now part of the culture. William Hedgepeth, who was a young reporter, went undercover to write about the summer's events, explained, consciousness is irreversible. I never wore a suit again. 
you know, the, the uh, cliche uh, thing that the hippies were up against was the man, right? The man which represents a perception that dominant culture and human authority is inherently corrupt, which by the way it is. Um, and so they're right in that sort of diagnosis, but they're resisting uh, the man and the, the perception that they had is now part of the dominant culture, actually. Uh, we're all hippies now, you could say, in uh, 2017. And Americans and Westerners, uh, as Americans and, and Westerners more generally, we live in a sort of egalitarian society. Whether we realize it or, or not, implicitly, that is sort of our uh, philosophy uh, towards things like authority. Uh, we don't trust authority. So we either uh, check out entirely and become aloof about it and towards it, or we rebel. Uh, or better yet, we seek power ourselves. You know, every politician wants to clean up Washington, and then when they get there, they become a part of the system, and someone else wants to clean them up too. I tell you all this because it relates to the very end of Romans chapter 8, this idea of authority um, and our disposition toward it. Now, Romans chapter 8 as a whole is a cohesive unit, but toward the end, uh, especially verses 28 through uh, 39, Paul is getting at the idea of uh, God's sovereignty, that he is the true king. Just listen to these few verses, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, there are three things in just these two verses that appear throughout the rest of the passage uh, that I want to highlight for you. First is uh, Paul's pastoral awareness that suffering and trouble uh, for the Christian is just a reality of life, uh, that it is going to happen either through just natural suffering or condemnation, whether that's from ourselves and our own sort of guilty feelings or our earthly enemies who might condemn us and bring us to trial or from Satan himself. And so Paul's aware of the trouble, of the suffering that still carries on also, the second thing is the idea, as I said, of God's sovereignty, which means that he is the supreme authority, the man, as it were, but the real man. And finally, the third idea to pick out here is the idea that uh, the sovereign God toward the suffering and troubled people, uh, he preserves us. Now, people often talk about the, the uh, perseverance of the saints, and I agree with that. But often when people talk about it, it seems like they're talking about as if it's up to our own strength. We uh, persevere because God preserves us. He sustains us through our suffering because he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. Uh, so these are sort of the, the points that, that Paul's driving home here for the suffering Christians who, if they're not suffering, will. So if uh, our guilty and doubtful consciences or our earthly oppressors, or the devil bring charges against us, we can be reassured that the God who chose us from before creation, and the God who also justified us through his son, and the God who will one day glorify us to all eternity, is also the God who sustains us by his sovereignty. He has dominion over our entire lives. And actually, come to think of all that, 
it might not be his will to deliver us from our suffering. As a matter of fact, he might have put us in certain predicaments so that we might be drawn closer to him. Uh, so in our prayer, think about that, that we might not just pray for deliverance from suffering, but maybe acknowledge that God is at work, already at work in the suffering by his sovereignty. But wait a minute. Uh, as I said, as modern Westerners, we don't understand any of this. We don't like it. Uh, we just don't, uh, we're, as I said, we're all hippies now. We might not dress like the hippies, but in terms of our philosophy toward things like sovereignty, uh, it just doesn't make sense to us. We, we can't make sense of it. And it's not just since 1967. It's been going on for a while. But people around the world, even now and throughout history, have better understood concepts like sovereignty than we do. I mean, just think in our own church tradition, the story of Thomas Cranmer. Do you remember his death uh, at the end of his life, waffling back and forth about where his convictions lie? Because he believed in a doctrine from the medieval church called the divine right of kings. And it was so powerful to him that it would trump even his theological convictions that he was finding in the Bible. But at the end of the day, he changed his mind the right direction and said, no, Mary is wrong. Uh, Queen Mary is wrong. And he stood up for what he believed. But till the end, you know, I mean, he was so convicted of this idea that she was the sovereign ruler and he had to obey that that's what he did. Uh, even her own sister, uh, Queen Mary's sister, Jane Grey, do you remember her? She was on the throne in England for like a week before Mary herself not only uh, dethroned her, but had her executed. And while Jane Grey is there in the Tower of London awaiting her execution, her new sovereign ruler, her sister, uh, she gives her a gift of her own Bible and write, wrote this inscription inside of her Bible to her sister. Rejoice in Christ as I do. Follow the steps of your master Christ and take up your cross. I mean, these were people who understood something like sovereignty, even when they didn't agree with who was on the throne. But deep down, none of us want sovereign rulers, actually. All our earthly kings fail us. Uh, meanwhile, we strive to be the kings of our own lives. And this is the primary problem of the fall, that Adam and Eve tried to dethrone God and put themselves there. And it's been the same ever since. You know, the pharaohs and King Herods of the world kill all the firstborn sons. And even the King Davids and King Hezekiahs and King Josiahs, no matter how great they were, also they too fail us. No wonder we're skeptical of sovereignty. But God is unlike all of these kings. You know, there's a movement in the, there's a subculture in the Christian church of people who are trying to stop referring uh, to God as God the Father because of their own hangups with the idea of fathers, because a lot of fathers are terrible. But that's a total mistake because what they're doing is projecting that baggage onto God. And the good news is he's better than all of those fathers. He is the uh, eternal father, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the true king, mighty God, who we should uh, be honoring as such and not projecting all our own sort of um, baggage about fathers and kings onto because he's perfect in every way that all these other fathers and kings and queens have failed us in our past. But the elephant in the room with Romans chapter 8 is predestination. 
uh, I mean, with the sort of hippie mindset of American Westerners, that is a doctrine that we just uh, avoid talking about. But it's there. It's right there in chapter 8 of Romans. And the main point of chapter 8 is not predestination. It's God's sovereignty with respect to our suffering uh, and his care for us. But Paul points to predestination as a, as a reason uh, for understanding his main point. It's a subtopic. And by the way, predestination is not foreign to Episcopalianism. Uh, actually, in our 39 Articles of Religion, the longest article is on predestination. Uh, I mean, it's a short treatment of predestination, as it were, uh, but there it is. Among the 39 things that the, uh, the, ch the church during the Reformation wanted to um, stand by, one of them was predestination. And I love this phrase from that article about that doctrine of predestination. The godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ. Indeed, there is no grace, there is no gospel, there's no uh, justification, there's no sanctification, there's no glorification without also predestination. You can't have uh, one without the other. They're all part of an uh, entire package. I recently read something uh, by Timothy Keller where he uh, addresses uh, this topic in a and what I think is a real lovely and understandable way. Uh, he says, I once spoke to a missionary who worked among prostitutes in Korea some years ago. He found that women in that culture simply could not accept the idea of God extending grace to them. Their self-loathing was too great. No matter how much the missionary showed them narratives of Jesus' forgiveness and passages about God's love and grace, he got nowhere. Finally, the missionary, who was a Presbyterian, came, with, came up with a radical idea. He decided to talk to these non-Christian Asian prostitutes about the doctrine of predestination. No one denies there are biblical texts that talk about God predestining and electing people to believe in him, though there is plenty of controversy about what these passages mean exactly. In our Western, democratic, egalitarian culture, the idea of God's sovereignty and his control of all things is definitely an unacceptable doctrine. We don't like those parts of the Bible that talk about God being completely in charge of history or those parts where he opens the hearts of those chosen for eternal life. So when sharing the gospel, we avoid this doctrine at all costs. This missionary, however, realized that this was not necessarily true in mid 20th century Korea. So he told the prostitutes about a God who is a king. Kings, he said, have a sovereign right to act as they saw fit. They rule. That's just what kings do. And this great divine king chooses to select people out of the human race to serve him, simply because it is his sovereign will to do so. Therefore, his people are saved because of his royal will, not because of the quality of their lives or anything they have done. This made sense to the women. They had no problem uh, with the idea of authority figures acting in this way. It seemed natural and right to them. But this also meant that when people were saved, it was not because of pedigree, virtue, or effort, but because of the will of God. 
Their acceptance of this belief opened up the possibility of understanding and accepting the belief in salvation by grace. They asked my missionary friend a question that non-Christians in the West would never ask. How can I know if I am chosen? He answered that as they heard the, if, as they heard the gospel, they wanted to accept and believe it. This was a sign that the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts and that God was seeking them, and some of them responded. The question the missionary asked the Korean prostitutes was, if you believe in a sovereign God, why won't you believe that you can be saved by grace despite all that you've done? Allow me to ask you the inverse question. If we struggle as Americans, as Westerners, with an opposite worldview. If you believe that you can be saved by grace, despite all that you've done, why won't you believe in a sovereign God? Often we can accept the idea intellectually, but we behave quite differently. We vainly live like the dysfunctional kings and queens of our own lives. Friends, God is sovereign over every circumstance of our lives, including our trouble and suffering. And any perseverance that we have depends entirely on his preservation. And so I say to you, dethrone yourself from the courtroom of your heart. Abdicate your reign. It's not a peaceable kingdom anyway with you there. Allow God the Father to sit on the throne with his son at the right hand. And, you know, what troubles you or gives you suffering? Or maybe what's a besetting sin that you struggle with? Place your faith in that sovereign king right there in that place and accept that the one true God is involved. And maybe even he brought this trouble about and wants you to be there with him to draw, him, to draw you closer to himself. In other words, stop being a hippie. <laughs> Allow the man to take control, but the real man, not the one that we project all the um, failings onto. I'll leave you with these uh, words of comfort about our sovereign king and God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.